DealQuest listeners and viewers, I am so excited to have not only an amazing entrepreneur who went through a series of deals uh, in his journey, but a good friend and client of mine, John Toda, on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Hey, John, what are they going to hear on your episode of DealQuest? Uh, Corey, I'm excited to be with you. We're going to talk about my journey of co-founding my company, all the deals that we created along the way to get it up and running, how we managed our shareholders and our different investors, and then ultimately the deal that we made to exit the company and make sure that everybody got out and and happy in, uh, and really it's going to be a fun conversation. The journey has been a long one. You and I know it very well. No question, folks. And listen, I mean, there's so many lessons in in John's journey. And it's uh, in a way for me, I'm excited about it because it's going to be a little trip down memory lane because this has been a 20 year journey that, uh, you know, I've had the honor of supporting John and his, uh, his growth and evolution and uh, being involved in all those deals. So uh, check it out. A lot to learn. John's got a lot of wisdom and, uh, and he has, um, let's just say, you know, been through all the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial and deal journey. <laughs> so check it out. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. John Toda, who is the host of the Learning Life podcast, is also the founder of Syntax in Motion, a Burlington, Vermont digital creative agency that specializes in online knowledge products. Serving as CEO and creative director, John has blended his passion for learning with his dream of creating original, meaningful content. He is also the Creative Knowledge Link, the New York City-based industry-leading online training platform recently acquired by Plato eLearning. In 2017, John launched the Learning Life with John Toto podcast to create a network and information hub for entrepreneurs, learning professionals, and everyday learners. Over the last hundred and counting episodes, well, I think John and I spoke a little earlier, and he's, I think he's over 150 now, he's a little ahead of me. Uh, learning Life has heard uh, from learning and development leaders, subject matter experts, company founders, and C-suite executives, all of whom have shared their personal journeys and lessons along the way. John leads Learning Life's production strategy and syntax company operations while spending as much of his time helping the next generation of thought leaders in producing their own knowledge products and building scalable subscription businesses around them. Catch John each week on his popular podcast show, Learning Life with John Toda, whenever you listen to podcasts. And listen, beyond the formal introduction, folks, John and I have known each other I'm going to say 15 plus. Uh, you probably know better. When did you probably start? When 20 did you start? Uh, probably more to like 20. Two, 2002, I started Edulence. And okay. uh, and I think we started working together even before that. So it's probably 20 years. Over 20 years. Yeah. Wow. Over yeah. 20 years, John and I have known each other. We've become good friends. Uh, John and, and his various businesses have been a great client of ours. Um, you know, we've been entrepreneurs organization buddies. There's a lot, you know, uh, that we've done together over the years. So I am so excited. I mean, if I didn't know John at all, he'd be a phenomenal guest because of his qualifications and the deals he's done and the businesses he's built. But uh, having uh, my good friend John Toto on the DealQuest podcast is exciting. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me, Corey. It's uh, it's exciting to be on DealQuest. Congratulations on on the show and all the episodes you got out there. And I. Uh, I was thinking about deals and I thought who better to talk about it with than you, because I haven't done a deal in 20 years that you haven't uh, actually worked and done all the magic for, right? I get to take the credit for it, but you and your team are the ones who've actually negotiated all those. I love it. I love well, listen, I, I will, uh, I will not be falsely modest. We did play a role, but you are the one who ultimately deserves the credit for it because we just, we're just helping you get them done. So, um, so we definitely want to talk about that. Uh, and folks, you know, I think this is going to be a fun evolution because you're going to be able to see 
the deals that John did from the start and during his journey and all the way through the exit of the of his company. But before we go to that journey, John, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up. Uh, what did you want to be? Because running an e-learning company and a production company might not have been it, but you you tell me. Yeah, so um, it's interesting because I guess it depends on how far back I go. I think I, me, like a lot of kids, I, I wanted to be a pilot and then an astronaut and, and sure. realized quickly not, not really the path for me. <laughs> um, but what I was passionate about in school and, and, and as I got to college too was, was video production. I loved film, uh, loved movies, loved even you know the art of screenwriting. And my plan was as soon as I, I kind of got through school and got out there, I, I was dead set on being a feature length, uh, feature length film screenwriter. And uh, I just assumed I didn't have to interview for any jobs coming out of college because my plan was I'd, I'd be at the Oscars in a, in a few years. So yeah, in some way, I always wanted to be in some form of production, maybe a little bit of a grander version than, than I do sometimes. But yeah, that's, that was my dream originally. Love it. Love it. And uh, one more question going back. What was the first deal of any type that you did? Could have been something small as a kid, you know, whatever comes to mind uh, later in life, whatever it is, what's the first deal you can remember? So the first deal that I remember, and, and probably not as early as maybe some people, but when I was a senior in college, I closed the deal on the option of my first screenplay. And, you know, and I had no idea how to do it, what you were looking for, what you know, the rights were and, and how, how all that worked. But yeah, at an early stage, and that's what kind of gave me this idea that I thought I could go out and sell a screenplay. Um, but I, it was a, uh, I think it was a $1,500 option with a production company that I probably screwed up the negotiation on. <laughs> and they, they had the rights to shop that around for as long as they wanted. And uh, but yeah, that was kind of the first contract I think I ever saw was was the option on that that very first script when I was a senior in college. Love it, love it. Okay, so let's talk. We, we you talked about uh, you know us doing deals together for twenty years. Um, so let's talk about this the start of Agilence, right? And uh, and you know what uh, I mean. You did some early deals to raise capital. Um, so why don't you, I, I really want to go through the evolution of, uh, of that journey with Agilence and Knowledge Inc. And um, because there's so many deals along the way. So let's start at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, and I think it is an interesting journey. And as you and I have talked about a lot of times is you kind of, when you start a business, you, you plan a certain path. You think it's going to be, you know, A to Z or it's going to be a direct route. And you take all these twists and turns along the way, along the way, and and you cut deals at every at every juncture. And, and I think for us, it really started. And if, if you remember, the first time you and I worked together, I believe we got like a consulting deal at the, I was working at a technology consulting company yep. uh, with a good friend of mine, Brian Edelman, who started that company. And I, I met him and joined him. And it was he, he, you know, me and Brian and an assistant. And then we got a national consulting contract um, with a big insurance company. And, um, and right from there, I think that was the first time that you and I, Jordan Fishman, I think, introduced us. That's, that's I, right. Yes, I right. Remember that. Yes, that, or, or it was Greg, Greg, Fish, Fish. Greg Fishman, Greg, Greg Fishman, Fishman, right? Yes, Greg Fishman. Yeah. he introduced us. And um, we did that first deal on almost um, a, a contract, I think, to produce a series of um, educational content for an insurance company. And based on that, that was when um, myself and my co-founders decided that, hey, maybe we could launch a business to develop training content in this way um, and then license it out to people. And it was really right from the beginning, we thought there'd be such a demand for our training methodologies and the way that um, we were helping financial advisors use their, their client relation managers. Um, and, and I love the video production side of it. So I said, hey, I can write the scripts. I can shoot them. My, my co-founder... Um, Brian at the time was was excellent on the adoption strategies. Everybody loved what he did. And he, I said to him, hey, wait, wait, maybe we should script it, shoot these videos with you. And then at the time, I, I think it was CD-ROMs or maybe not even DVDs yet. <laughs> burn them onto CD-ROMs and ship them out. And Brian loved the idea because he wouldn't have to leave the office. He could just shoot the videos. I, I'd get, you know, I'd get back into the production side of my, my passion. And we shot that first series of videos and and that was the very first deal we worked on. 
And it started the company. We kind of saw for the first time that, hey, maybe there's a business here. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know if we knew where that was going to go from there. And as you know, it, it twists and turns quite a bit in those early years. Absolutely. So, so you, you basically split off the separate business from the existing, from the existing company, right? And, you know, you had, you had a piece and Brian had a piece and uh, Brian's brother had a piece. And, and, then, um, and then you guys, uh, one of the first big things was you raised some capital, right? Yeah, so that was, uh, that was our first plan. You know, we, we went out the door and, and again, you know, you look back, this was 2001 going into 2002, dot com craziness. And I think that we were all like, hey, we got an idea. And, and again, think back, we were thinking about producing interactive video training content. Um, back then, not, not a lot of people were doing it. So we thought we were onto something really big. Pre YouTube, pre Zoom, pre, I mean, folks, if anybody who's younger listening to this, you got to understand every tool that we use now for any of this stuff online did not exist. Okay. And and that's what, um, that's what's amazing when you look back at it now, because now in 2002, we'd gotten that first deal and we said, hey, let's start a company um, to deliver. And really what it came down to is that when we were starting Edulence, we said, hey, you know, like, the cost of burning CD-ROMs, shipping them out to people, and then maintaining them was just too great. And it was early, early stage. There was Microsoft Windows Media Player with this digital rights management. It never worked right. Things just buffered and buffered and <laughs> the worst demonstrations you ever had. But we were producing, and I think we were one of the, the real pioneers in this, the first video training system of about a year or two before YouTube even, even hit the market and became popular. So yeah. you could imagine how challenging those presentations were because no one believed it was going to work and it didn't work half the time. And so <laughs> we, um, so we did, we said, all right, we've got to invest in the platform and build out our own technology. So the only way to do that was to go out and do a friends and family round. And, um, we had a lot, a lot of really good relationships in the insurance industry, people that we'd known and consulted for who trusted us. Um, and then we went to, you know, our own network of, of friends and family members and we raised $500,000. That was kind of our initial investment to build the platform and bring it to market. Um, and then, you know, you had these visions that, hey, hey, in three years, this will be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And then we'll go public right after that. And, and you guys are going to love it. And of course, as you know, it was a little longer road than, just than that. Little. Yeah, just a little. Just a little. But, you know, and, and but I think it's one of those things that you go out and, and you raise money and everybody, when they raise money, you have the idea that you're going to be the next unicorn. You, you're going to you're going to change the industry and, um, and and have a fabulous exit for all your investors. And then, you know, you get into the grind and you say, wow, 500,000 might not have been enough money. We might have needed a little bit more. And, and I think in retrospect, you look back and you go, yeah, okay. So maybe there were a few things you could have done early stage, even with the amount of financing that you needed in order to get to that, that critical point that you had to get to. Um, but it was a tremendous experience, you know, and, and I think for anybody listening who's done it, it's challenging to go to friends and family and ask for money and then maintain the relationship with them for, in my case, you know, well over 10 years, almost 15, 15 years. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah and that's part of it. It is. And, 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 you know, folks, I think one of the things that I love about this journey that we've started to talk to you about, we're going to continue on, um, you know, and, and of course, as John said, I, you know, we, we've been working with him this whole time, so I'm very familiar with it. Um, that I love is that, um, and one of the things I, you know, I encourage you to listen through is there are so many places where other companies, I mean, listen, there are plenty of companies that, you know, are supposed to be unicorns raising a bunch of money and then they burn and they're gone, right? You know, like, so the ability to actually, you know, continue on and pivot, there are plenty of companies who, you know, end up with issues with their founders or their investors or whatever. And one of the things that's always impressed me about John was that at every stage, he was able to navigate through, and we're going to talk about some of the challenges that came up, you know, navigate through these challenges and still get his company, you know, to a point where they eventually exited. So, uh, all right. So we raised this capital. At some point, it becomes clear. Oh, and by the way, in addition, there's a major market shift that happens, right, from the early 2000s, you know, <laughs> to the dot-com bust and uh, everything that happened there that you had to navigate, right? So at some point between the market conditions 
uh, you know, for capital and, uh, you know, what's going on with the company, uh, you realize that this is not going to be that, you know, three-year exit or five-year exit unicorn. Um, so what comes up out of that? What, you know, what kind of challenges show up there? Yeah, and I, and I think those, you know, it's probably not unique to us starting a tech company up at that time. And, and the technology was changing so quickly. The internet was evolving, like while you were building your, your solution and, and then it, it busts out, you know, in the middle of it. And, and what we realized is that uh, we kind of fell back on our ability to develop content for people. And I, I'd say this all the time, I'm kind of a content producer at heart. And I think what we fell back on is, okay, we're going to build this subscription software platform, which back then SAS wasn't even an acronym that people used, right? Right. Um, there was no Amazon Web Services. It wasn't something that was easy to just launch a, a subscription software service. And um, what, what we really did is we looked at the market and said, okay, so, you know, we built some pretty good technology, but it's not quite there. It's not really ready for prime time. And my partners at the time, we, we'd all been in a consulting company together and, um, and they were really running that more active in that side of the business. And I said to them, and this was one of the first deals that we did is, um, I went into them and said, hey, listen, let's split, split these operations. At the time, we were in an office together. Right. I, I was living in New York City. They were out in New Jersey. I said, I'm going to move the business into New York City. You guys keep your equity in it. Um, you run the consulting business. And I'm going to go take this and, and run it you know, and, and get it over the, the hump because you know, we raised money from friends and family and we burnt through that money um, building the platform and we still hadn't gotten to you know, good revenues. And so I said, you know, um, I'm going to keep pushing that forward. I love it. I, I love the production aspect. I love video, streaming video, and, you know, and, and this idea that there might be a new emerging market. So uh, I, I, you know, we kind of separated on very amicable terms and, and they were great in the fact that they were like silent partners now who, yep. who let me go off and, and do what I needed to do. But we did shift and say, okay, well, we got to get to revenues we run through most of our financing and we've got to find a way to pay the bills on our own. And so that shift while we were building up the subscription business was to start producing content for people. Went back to kind of what I loved, what my passion was and said, Hey, we can go to these insurance companies. And now, even though I don't have a, a content library that they want, we're pretty good at producing it. So let's produce their content. And um, guardian life was one of my first customers that, you know, kind of trusted us to get this off the ground we yep. produced a series of content for them. And the first deal that kind of put us on the map is they um, bought a series of content um, that I would produce. It's kind of funny because I, I remember I did the voiceovers <laughs> on their training materials. And it's really weird to present that as a salesperson. And then the, the guy doing the voiceover is you also. And so, you know, and, uh, and so we produced it. And, and the first deal I think I did to get us off the ground was for those early insurance companies, we gave them the platform for free. We said, listen, we don't know how well it's going to work. We don't know if it's going to be perfect, but we want partners who will scale with us. And so we're going to give you the technology for free and we'll integrate it at no charge into your corporate intranet. Um, and then all you pay us for is the content. We just felt that this is a better way to deliver the content in, as opposed to what, you know, the, the DVDs. And so fast forward a, a, a few years later, and we had signed, a, a, you know, about, five or six big insurance companies who would have yeah. never ha had been a technology partner of a, such a small company. But because we gave it to them free and we did these single sign-on integrations, we had this little bit of a, a buffer to say, okay, they're invested in us developing the, the platform, making it better. Um, and that, the, uh, as you know, what worked out very well is once you get an integration done, now it's, they've got an investment in it. They feel like they're, it, it, it's a real partnership and it's easier to get you to add the features they need than to go and find another vendor. And, and in the end, that's what really got us our jumpstart that these companies took the platform. We were on the hook then to just keep making the technology better. Um, but it took, you know, because we were self-financing in that way, spent so much of your time doing custom work that it just, you know, stretched out the runway. It took us a bit longer because we were splitting our time between, hey, how many people can work on the subscription product while everyone else is doing custom work that, that pays the bills? And that's, that's kind of how we got the model going. Yeah. Okay. So now, 
over this time, so now, now you're building a business that actually, what a concept is, has revenue, um, even at some point has profit. Um, yeah. <laughs> unlike some of the, uh, you know, it's funny, I just spoke yesterday with a client of mine, uh, you know, who I represented for many, many years, and his first business sold right before the dot com bust, never made a penny, and he got a nice, you know, uh, you know, a respectable, nice exit on it. And then he, his next company, you know, he built and made great cash flow for the next 15 plus years. And, 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 you know, it was a much more profitable company and never got the same exit <laughs> that he got on the, on the first company. Right. You know, so, um, so in any case, so now you're building a company that's, you know, that, that's um, generating revenue, eventually generating profit. Um, but you have some of these investors and they're a little all over the map, right. In terms of their, patience, lack of patience, desire for returns, all that kind of stuff, right? So talk a little bit about navigating that. Yeah, and, and, and I think to your point, one of the things that I remember, I, I'd set up a board of directors, um, included my, my two original partners um, and two of the original investors who had put in um, you know, a, a good amount of money with us. And um, that was a good experience. You know, having a board is the first time I ever did that. Uh, and, and I remember one of those investors saying to me, um, he said, you know, it's just that it looks like you're running a lifestyle business. <laughs> and as I joke with you, I, I had to look it up online. I didn't know what a lifestyle business meant. And then afterwards, I was like, wow, I think that's an insult. I don't think he's happy. <laughs> and, and, you know, you got to look at it from an investor perspective. That's like the worst dig that you could say at a company you're invested in is that it's a lifestyle business. Right. Um, and, I, and I took it to heart, though. And I, and I really thought about we were generating revenue and we kept generating more revenue but we kept spending more. And at each juncture that we would hit that next plateau, make a little bit more, we added more payroll, we upgraded our office and we got into this cycle where it was almost getting competitive with other businesses about headcount and revenue numbers mm -hmm. and never a mention and never a thought in my mind really about profitability. Because if you remember back then, everyone was kind of focused on, Hey, Look at an Amazon. You don't need to make profits. You could just just scale, just grow your user base, grow your revenues. You know, who cares if you ever make a profit? And, you know, we followed that model for a while and we survived. But to, you know, my one of my investor or, or the um, director on our board, to his credit, he kind of shined a light on it that, hey, once you take that first dollar from someone, you can't be a lifestyle business. Like you need to find an exit for your investors. And, and I think that when I thought about that, this original idea of exiting by an IPO, well, that you just throw right off the table and you go, okay, that's, that's not an option. Now, how close are we to being the kind of business that can get acquired in our subscription side, which is the type of business people want to acquire, that hadn't grown enough. The custom business people don't really value very much. And so we were kind of caught in that world where you, we had to figure out how do we now tweak the dials and get back to just focus on profit? Because the one thing, as any business owner knows, regardless of your style of business, if you can show that you're creating meaningful profits out of a, a, even a slowly growing revenue stream, there's value there. And, and it forced me to make some difficult decisions there, which was pull back on scaling, you know, because getting more revenue, getting to the next level, get closing more sales. If it's coming at by doing these custom deals that are costing us more and more money to do, we're not getting any closer to some type of meaningful exit for, for our investors. And even if for me, I made that realization that this might not be that fabulous, you know, unicorn exit, but you still have that responsibility that you, you had partners that you co-founded with, you, you took money from, you know, tr people who trusted you, you got to find them an exit, you know, and even if it's creative and you know, that's kind of the next piece of it is, you know, everybody takes their own path. But I, I believe one of the things that, as you know, I was committed to getting to that exit and finding a way to make it happen. No, and, and for me, there's no question that, and I could say this specifically because of course I was involved with you and supporting you, um, is that, you know, it's one of the things that differentiates you from some folks who take money who actually run into major trouble with their investors. And listen, not that you didn't have pressure from some and some ch challenging conversations with some, but you know, you were never at a point where investors were gonna sue you or they were bad-mouthing you, whatever, like which happens with some folks because they don't deal with their investors honestly. They they aren't committed, you know, to to making sure that they do the best to get, you know, get 
get some sort of return for them. You know, so I think your investors, I know your investors saw that. Um, but despite that, it's, you know, it's pressure. I think you highlight some things that are important lessons for folks, you know, which is, you know, your comment about once you take money, you know, you can't just be a lifestyle business. I mean, one of the things that I say from a entrepreneur's point of view is that, you know, I try to flip the conversation of lifestyle business on its head because you're right in the, in the funding field, it, it is an insult, right? But for me, when, if you're an entrepreneur starting your own business, it should be a lifestyle business. Now, that lifestyle business could be a quick growing funded company looking to exit if that's what you want it to be, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like, but hopefully you're the one who's dictating what that lifestyle is. And, and if, you know, I sort of say, if, if the, listen, why, why are we creating our own, uh, you know, companies if it doesn't create the life that we want it to create for us, right? Um, so what that raises is that um, you need to be ready if you're going to raise capital to know that you're in a different game now because the version of lifestyle business that is an insult, you, you know, is, yeah, it's off the table. I mean, they're looking for returns. That's number one, um, which is big. And then, you know, the other thing that you talked about, which I, uh, has come up on some of uh, past episodes, like it was one of the trends that Joel Block on his episode talked about, you know, is the value of, um, of uh, re repetitive income. Subscription is one of those, right? You know, you said custom work, right, is only so valuable. I mean, it's the same thing in every industry. In financial services, commission-based business is worth a lot less than than fee-based business because fee-based business is, re is recurring quarterly. So recurring revenue, uh, which subscription models are part of, you know, is, is way more valuable. So you recognize that and, and that was an important pivot. Yeah, and, and, and I think um, we'd always wanted to build that subscription model. It yeah. was a much co more costly proposition 10, Back 15 then. years ago right. than today. And yet I saw it and I, and I thought, wow, the first time that we got some subscription customers, who just renewed automatically and, the, and there was no negotiation. The price went up the agreed upon amount, uh, amount on the renewal and, and you had another, you know, another year of service. And that's what you could kind of count on. And when I restructured the business, I said, okay, well, let's just look at what we're making in the, the residual of uh, the monthly residual revenue and whatever that can afford is where we got to get our expenses to. Yeah. And, and, you know, no more of this, you know, rolling the dice and hey, maybe it covers it, but then we'll go out and sell a deal for a couple hundred thousand and, 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 uh, and cover the, the gap. So that was, you know, that was eye opening for me. And I think it was a good lesson because I hadn't started as a business person. I was really a creative. I wanted to be in the production side. I fell in love with building the application and designing the software, but the business side is, was always just another thing you had to do. And, and to your point earlier, I, I was fortunate because I had great advisors like, like you on the legal side, our accountants who have been with us from the beginning, uh, good understanding co-founders who, you know, kind of trusted that we were doing the right things, even though they were off building their own business and, and having these investors that, um, you know, yeah, nobody wants to sit in an investment for 15 years and hope that they're going to see their money again and make a return. But I, I think and you know this too, I think what always helped me, and it's hard sometimes, there's challenging conversations you have to have. You have, you know, Christmas dinner and half the people at the table have invested <laughs> money with you and they kind of want to know what's going on. And so you can't run from those conversations. You have to face them up, be vulnerable, you know, and say like, listen, I thought it was going to be quicker. It's taken longer, but these are the things we're excited about. I, I always tell people, temper your excitement because you can't, you can't build up too much excitement and positivity and yet not have gotten them their exit yet. So there's a balancing act of being optimistic, but also being realistic with them and, and communicating. And I think one of the things that even today, I, I, you know, we did get to an exit and it was very amicable with all of our shareholders and with my, my co-founders. And, and I think a lot of that is just communication, even it's hard to do. And, um, we, we started doing annual up shareholder updates because they hadn't heard from us in a while. And, and I said, it's hard to do, but that's your responsibility. And you got to learn that those are the types of things that, that people expect. And I didn't have VC money. I didn't have private equity money. So this is far easier than what I would have had to do. Um, but I think it was a good learning process. And I think certainly to your, um, to you, you know, thanks to you and your team and, uh, and our accountants, 
everyone guided me in the right way. And sometimes you don't want to hear it because you, you, you think, oh man, that's another thing I got to do. But uh, it ended up, it ended up in the right place for us. Yeah. And, and, you know, without getting into specific details, because that wouldn't be appropriate, but, you know, there was some folks, right, that had, were a little more anxious to get their money out. And you worked out deals actually pre-exit with some of them, uh, some of the investors and found, you know, and the founder, and then, uh, and then some people, you know, um, you know, uh, were longer in and, and, and some people stayed for the ride. Right. So there are various points at which, you know, depending upon people's uh, desires and timing and li- their own life situations, we, we did some deals in the interim. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think this is kind of the cool part about it is that you and I really kind of went into that, that deal mode. And, and I, I remember when this was, I think it was around um, 2016 uh, where I kind of got to that point where I said, you know, it's, it's been a long time now, you know, it's almost 15 years. Uh, people, I need to, people are calling and they, and, and also times had turned hard on a lot of people, the market, uh, you know, the, that, that was around the time uh, it was 2010, right? So 2009 people who were making tons of money and weren't even thinking about this. They right. said, Hey, I got, I got $50,000 invested over here. It'd be good if I could get that back now. And right. at that point, they were like, I don't even care about a return, but I, right now, you know, I money's tight. Right. We, we had lots of, lots of value in our real estate. We had lots of value in our business. And, and so times have changed. And, I, and I, I think what was important for us is to know that, and, and we did at, in 2016, I got together with you and the accountants and we, we said, hey, we got to come up with a creative way to, to start buying back shares. Um, and I didn't have... A, a lump sum of cash in the company that we could do it all at once. So what we decided to do, and this is again, a, a kind of a, a creative way to get to it. We created a, a buyback program and, um, you know, an equity uh, repurchase plan technically. Right? And um, we gave them different options. One option was you could get your money back on a very quick payment plan, uh, but with no return. And that was for people who had called me up. I, I had one shareholder who had passed away. And his wife called me up and she said, listen, I don't even know what this business is. My husband had invested in all these things and I need the money now. And, and that breaks your heart. You think, first of all, this is a guy who was a, a great supporter of ours, a good friend of mine. He passed away. And you say, well, you'll do anything you can to figure out a creative way to get it back. And, and there were a few of those requests. And, and so we said, all right, well, for those people, let's just do a, a short payment plan. Uh, and get them their money back immediately um, if you don't want to wait around for a return. But then we offered this option too, which I, I think was, you know, on, on your end, a really creative idea to say, okay, well, if you want to get your money back, but you can wait a little bit longer, we stretch it out to a longer term payment plan, but we let you, we let you keep half of your equity in common, in common non-voting shares. Because we were also, as you know, we're trying to shut down this preferred class of stock to set us up for a sale in the future. And so for them, they you know, if you can get us our money back, we know we're going to get it. Uh, and we can keep that, that opportunity to get, to get a, a return on this in the future with no risk at that point. Um, then that was really appealing. And I think it worked to our end because probably a third of the investors really needed their money out and just, we got them paid out fast, got them their money back. And then the other two thirds, saw the opportunity, liked this idea that they could get money off the table and still share in that, that exit opportunity that might be further down the road. And it also did for, for us what we needed, which was closing down that preferred um, block of shares and then, you know, and really setting us up so we could do some more deals in the future. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that, you know, that John talked about, which is important and, you know, and listen, I happen to be you know, my firm happened to be the legal side for John, but this is a general comment about having good legal and good accounting, you know, advice. You know, when you're doing these kind of things, you're balancing a bunch of stuff, right? And that's what we helped John do. On the one hand, yes, we wanted to clean up the cap table to be able to prepare it. We wanted to, you know, John, uh, as you can tell, was very concerned about, you know, he wasn't, unfortunately, there's some folks out there who don't care about their investors, right? And that, you know, John, John really was, you know, uh, empathetic, sympathetic and tried to, you know, so, and, and coming up with this optionality that gave, you know, the, the, the shareholders, the investors, the choice to, to pick what fit for them was good. What it also did was it sort of divided up, you know, it extended out some of the payment obligations, 
Um, because, you know, and this is where your accounting and financial support comes in as well, because you got to project out, you know, can the company afford this? I mean, you still need to pay people, you still need growth capital, you still need, you know, so it's that balance between keeping it growing to be able to um, just be successful and, and build towards an exit and having a certain amount of cash going out and what can a company afford to do and cleaning up the cat table and getting it ready for a potential exit. You know, there's a lot of moving pieces and it takes, uh, you know, the, the entrepreneur and what their vision, values and goals and desires are. And it takes some legal structuring and advice and it takes some accounting and financial analysis. And, you know, we were able to put that all together. Um, so, yeah. And I, and I think that the process worked really well. We had great support from everyone and, 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 it, it, and like you said, everybody kind of had that option, you know, and of course, they, you know, those conversations weren't easy with all the shareholders. Sometimes they, they thought, well, I don't like either one. I know one of them said, I would like option three. I said, <laughs> there, there isn't an option three. He said, go find one for me. And so, you know, they were, some of the conversations were, were not um, fun, but you, and I, I do feel that from my perspective, you you have to put your yourself in the shoes of the investor, someone who gave you money, even if it was ten thousand dollars. You have a responsibility to them, and and you, you never want to be the one on the other side of the phone when someone says, "Hey, thanks for your money, but I have no way to get it back to you yep. at all." And and so I think that 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 was a a good learning experience. It worked out in the end really well, and and it did. It set us up uh, at that point. I reduced our operating expenses moved us into smaller office space. We outsourced a lot of roles that, you know, were expensive full-time employees in New York City. And we got our, our operating expense down to the level that we could afford to make the shareholder buyback payments. Because like you said, it's worthless if you say to them, trust me, sell, you know, I'm going to buy back your stock on a payment plan, but then three months later, you don't have the money to pay that all right. those promissory notes. So, um, yeah, so that that worked out, and everybody got paid out in full, you know, on on the schedule that we had set, and and it did it 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 made me feel good because there the people who needed to get their money out, we had a solution. The people who wanted to take the risk off the table, but then also know that hey, if you guys pull something off, of it, there's a there's a little something on the back end, uh, and it worked out. It was a it was a nice set a nice setup for everyone, and that kind of started our transition towards being a profitable company um, and setting us up where we looked like uh, the type of business that um, people would want to acquire and, and then it would add yeah. value to a, a larger company. Yeah. So, so now, now, you know, your profitability is better. The cap tables cleaned up. The people who needed their money back have gotten it. The other people have gotten it along the period and have still have some peace. Uh, one of your co-founders is, is in for the whole ride and now you have this opportunity to exit, right? So tell, tell us a little bit about, you know. Yeah, yeah. so, and, and I, I think you know this too, that um, you don't, these, these deals don't happen overnight. And I look back, uh, it's, uh, we, we closed on our acquisition in um, April 27th, 2020. So just, just over a year ago. But if you look back, I think I was working on that exit even before I found a buyer for the three years before, kind of yep. setting all the pieces in place, making us look like the type of company that um, that people would want to be, you know, would at least want to consider. Uh, so, yeah, so we, um, we, well, it's funny. I, as you know, I, I host a podcast show too, where I interview entrepreneurs and I've been doing it for, I, I guess it's close to four years now. Um, and I, I can't remember which episode it was, but we recorded it on April uh, I think it was April 19th, sometime in April, 2019, a year before the acquisition. Uh, I had been interviewing e-learning uh, executives and, uh, and people who, you know, thought leaders in the space. We'd always been kind of in financial services, but, you know, that I was really interested in the learning and development space. There was a guy by the name of Andrew Sibley who founded a company, was CEO of a company called e-learning brothers, and we'd known each other through the industry. We bumped into each other along the way, worked on a deal together once, uh, but hadn't talked in ages. Uh, my, my head of sales reached out to his company. He ended up coming on for an interview on the podcast show that April. We, he tell, uh, he, we spent 30 minutes talking about his vision for e-learning, where it was going to go. 
And as soon as we hung up the call, he said, well, you know my vision now and we need a platform. Are you looking to sell yours? <laughs> and I said, wow, man, that's a, that, that was a good turn of events. So, uh, and, and then that started, I think I wasn't able to get the right meetings with a private equity firm or a VC firm. I would always get those cold callers and they'd run you through the mill with all the, the, the back and forth. And then you never got to a partner. And he was at such a late stage where he'd already secured, already secured financing with private equity firms. He just needed the pieces of the puzzle that within a, a week or two, I had a meeting with the founding partners of the private equity firm and they gave us a letter of intent. I'd never seen anything like that. I, again, I think I probably researched online what an LOI was <laughs> and then called you up immediately. And, uh, and so, you know, and that started the process and it took a year from that point to close the deal. But from that moment, we got to a letter of intent by the fall and then we went into due diligence, which uh, as you know, and, and we all know now, I, I didn't know how extensive due diligence was oh, going to yeah. be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we go there, I want to I want to do a little asterisk here because for uh, for any of you podcasters out there or would be podcasters, um, I want to highlight something. And I've said this on prior episodes in terms of, you know, most people think you launch a podcast the way if you're going to monetize it, the way you monetize it is that you get all these downloads and followers and you and you, uh, you know, and you get advertisers or sponsors or whatever. And, you know, this portion of podcast actually monetized that way. Um, one of the most underestimated value of a lot of podcasts, especially, frankly, a niche podcast, an intentionally niche podcast like this, right? This podcast is not intended to get a million downloads. It's intended to be a resource for people who do deals or want to learn how to do deals or entrepreneurs, you know, thinking about how they can grow in addition to organically and organically. That's a very targeted market. And, you know, if I get hundreds of people listening to episodes or thousands of downloads or tens of thousands of downloads, but not, you know, millions of downloads, that's great, you know, because, you know, uh, first of all, it's good exposure to me. But but even with that, people don't understand part of it is the guest strategy. And, I, and I've shared the relationships I've been able to build with certain people that have been significant business for me because of the guests. And look what John just said, right? John found his merger partner, right? His acquisition partner uh, initially triggered by having somebody as a guest on his podcast. So I want to, I want to highlight that, you know, guest strategy for you podcasters or would be podcasts out there. Okay. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Okay, so... Now we go into due diligence, right? Just give people, you know, you alluded to it, right? It's a, it's a body of work, right? When you got to produce legal, you know, legal, financial, cultural, employee, just give people a little sense of what a due diligence process for a target seller, uh, you know, company is like. Yeah. And, and as you know, because you helped us through it, our, our due diligence was probably more thorough than it, it would have been for our, our size deal, our size company, but it was part, it was part of a roll-up. So they're actually acquiring multiple businesses at once. So it was a lot, it ended up being a lot of money overall. And now you've got multiple private equity firms, banks involved, everyone's got their lawyers at the table. They've got a merger and acquisition firm with more people at each conference call than I had in my company. And so, and I'm all I could ever do was adding up the numbers. I'm like, this is the most expensive call I could imagine. All of these lawyers all on this call and bankers. And so I, um, I think it was good experience to have a legal team, uh, you know, on your side that took me every step through the way accountants that helped us. And then also um, my team internally, who was helping with all the, the finance and just delivering reporting. And, I, and, and to some extent, a lot of it is just this extensive amount of reporting on everything. And I also look at it now, at, at the time, I complained about everything they asked for. And then you look back and you go, oh, this is, this is why they know what they're doing, because they, you have to show uh, your revenues. Then they randomly pick from your books 
20 uh, invoices and you need to provide the contract for it, the background, how, you know, how it's priced, what profit you made on and everything. And, um, and, and it's interesting because a lot of that stuff we had, but it wasn't organized easily enough to find it. So it was, it, it was a difficult process to track things down, but they're interested in who are the employees, how are they locked into the company? What kind of contracts do you have? What are all those client relationships look like? For us, because it was a, a subscription service business, what's your technology look like? We had to do a whole due diligence on the technology that they were buying, because really it was, an, it, it was an asset sale of our intellectual property for the most part. They yeah. wanted our, our software and our client list. And so they, they do a very extensive review. They came on site, visit, you know, see who the employees are, see what you're doing. Uh, and then a uh, really extensive breakdown of the numbers. And uh, what I probably wasn't valuing in some way is that is the way that they look at what the actual value of the company is. You know, the costs that get pulled out, that adjusted EBITDA is yeah. a really amazing thing. You know, the, the, all the adjustments that, you know, you know, these are the things and for us, it was unique but it really worked towards our favors that we had stripped away all the expenses that a lot of um, software service SaaS companies have. We had very little marketing expense, very little sales, just one sales rep. We had almost all of our um, investment and in payroll in the engineering of the application, which to a fault that that's why our sales weren't higher than they could have been. But we also had um, minimal amount of HR admin finance. So, the way that when I stripped out all the pieces and got down to the core of what we were really great at, which was an innovation company, we were good at developing this one type of technology. We needed to find the right partner who had all of those other pieces right. already in place. And so this roll-up worked well because they looked at us and said, okay, we're a very valuable piece of the puzzle because we can just plug our, our engineering team and our intellectual property into their larger machine that had great sales great marketing, all of the operations. And, and so it was fortunate that we found an acquisition partner that fit with us in that perfect way. Uh, Culture-wise, it was a, a good fit. You know, mo almost every one of our employees stayed with the company post-acquisition and they're all happy. And, uh, and it worked for, for them because we were a very easy piece to acquire and integrate into a larger model because we didn't have all these extra expenses that that were hard to eliminate all those costs that kind of eat into your earnings potential yeah. and and so that i think that was what they needed to prove out in due diligence is are is this all real you know why does it look so cost effective and yeah and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and you understand yeah, because, because sometimes companies are showing you know very big profits but uh whatever because they because there's expenses they should be spending on that they're not. And that's actually a vulnerability. So that's yes. the due diligence they had to do to make sure that wasn't the case with you, which it wasn't. Um, I want to hit on a couple other things. And, and I like I feel like we could talk for hours yeah. more on this. But as you know, as a podcast host, we uh, we only you know, we can only go so long. But, uh, you know, uh, but there's one thing and, um, you, you know, I'm hoping that you're, uh, you're OK with me uh, mentioning this. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that this deal closed in April of 20. Um, and as people know, uh, two things happened right before that, which was COVID hit hard. And, the, and, and we had this major market dip, right, which, of course, came back up. But it, at the time, at a crucial time, it was a little unclear as to how big of a hit this was going to be on the economy. And... Um, and one of the things uh, that that sometimes does with deals is it has folks reevaluate either price or structure. Um, and, uh, you know, in this case, um, fortunately, um, it was structure for John, uh, you know, where we just, right, we moved a little more money to the back end on the earnout just just to give them a little more, it was shifting a little risk away from, um, you know, uh, from them to you. Uh, but it turned out great because you ended up you know, you ended up with the numbers you wanted because they're not worked out. But uh, but, you know, you're willing to be flexible and creative. And sometimes you need to do that, uh, you know, when there's some market conditions that cause some uncertainty. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned it, because the very first deal that you and I worked on, which um, now that I think about it, I think it was with 
well, I probably shouldn't say the name, but it was with a, a large bank, right? And uh, I remember them coming really hard with all the demands that they wanted. And you said, you know, at some point, it's just a business decision. It, it, you know, either you want this deal or you don't. And sometimes you have to be flexible so that you can walk away, the, away from the table with the deal. And it's funny that the kind of the conclusion of all of this was we had planned to close on that in December, long before COVID hit. And then it kept getting pushed out and pushed out. I was out at the, the headquarters meeting with them in um, January, February, March. I came back from that trip in March. And then a week later, the world shuts down. And yeah, as you can imagine, the investors, everyone panicked a little bit at that point. And, and I remember they came back and to their credit, they really wanted to do the deal. They knew that there was value in a virtual learning, e-learning play at this specific moment. And they were right about that. Uh, but they needed that assurance that, hey, what if you guys are wrong and all these lofty uh, projections are going to fall apart? And, and who knew like how long COVID was going to last? And so we still closed on the deal kind of just about a month, six weeks after the, the real hit of COVID. And the way that, that they came back and said, listen, you just have to put more into an earnout. But it was a very reasonable ask. They said, we're not going to adjust the price. We're not going to mess with that. You guys earned you know, the, the money. But let's see how this goes. And it was just an earnout through the end of the year for a percentage of the, the, um, the, the price. And it worked out great. It, it, you know, I stayed on as a consultant through the end of the year. All of the, the founders of the different companies were part of the company. And we were really incentivized to work hard and get that model off the ground and running in the middle of, of the pandemic and not to have a drop off. And uh, yeah, happily, it worked out in our favor. The investors are very happy. They, they kind of had that, that safety net they needed. Uh, we performed and, and it worked in the end. We got the earn out. Uh, but yeah, it's, I remember having that conversation once again with you, which was, I think we should walk away from this deal. And you said, yeah, there's not a lot of private equity money floating around right now. This might be the last deal you see for a long time. So, yeah, I mean, it was interesting because in that moment, I mean, you know, we, we came from a point where there was a lot of money out there. And by the way, there still is now. But in that moment, it could have dropped. Like we didn't know whether the market was coming back up. We didn't know how COVID was going to affect the economy. And obviously it hurt parts of the economy significantly, but other parts of the economy like online learning, it helped. Um you know, so, yeah, you never know what's going to happen. And especially, you know, when it was not a drop in price, but just, a, you know, an adjustment uh, where John could end up and the, and the other folks could end up, um, you know, uh, getting their full value, which and they ended up doing it. So, yeah, so that, you know, that that, that was an interesting development. But, you know, it's it's one of those things where the deal's not done till it's done. It's, you know, you, you yeah. could have spent all this due diligence time. And if the market really crashed, you know, I've seen deals get pulled sometimes. So I always tell people, don't go spending your money yet. Don't plan that round the world trip or that investment in your new business or the 200 rounds of golf or whatever it is for you, uh, you know, until it's done. All right. So um, I just I want to unfortunately, we need to bring this to a close. So I, I think the way I'd love to do this is there's one other element you were able to negotiate, which was sort of a carve out. Uh, right, for you, for the, something else you want to do, which could lead us into telling us what this other business you have is and what you're doing now and how can how people can find you on that. And then I'll ask you my last question after, after that. So let's evolve from the carve out to what you're doing and where people can contact you. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, yeah and I, I think uh, we had kind of created this exit plan or I created this idea for an exit plan in my mind is that you hear all entrepreneurs say how difficult it is when you sell your business and it's been your life for, in my case, 18 years and where are you going to go? And, and, and so I had known, well, I love the production side of the business. Always loved doing that. It kind of became an, a necessary evil in our business because really we started making more of the money from the subscription side, but we still loved producing content. And I always did it. So I started spun off a, a new business which was essentially a production company that could do those same types of projects. And one of the challenges, as you know, in the deal was that you get these very strict non-compete contracts when you sell your company. And I wasn't allowed to do anything in this learning and development space or sell another platform like mine for five years after the sale. Understandably, because that's what they're paying for. They don't want you right. to compete with it. 
Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and totally understandable. You know, that's what they have to do. And so I, I, I went back to them and, and you and I've had lots of discussions around this. I said, you know, I spent a lot of time building up this plan and I'm not in the same space as you. I work with professional speakers, thought leaders, coaches, and help them create their online learning content and launch it on platforms. So I'm hoping we can just carve out that piece of the world because you guys aren't interested in that. You're interested in large corporate learning and development. I'm interested in this other side of the world that I love. And, I, and I've got a lot of great relationships and friends there. And I said, and the, the flip side to this is that I also can put all of those people into the platform and they will typically be our best, most successful customers because I'm, I'm helping them. And so that was very appealing to the CEO of the, of the company saying, well, yeah, that's great. You're going to resell our software for us. You know how to sell it as well as anybody. Um, you support those, those people. And so we got a, a really nice opportunity to where they guaranteed us um, a good reseller relationship because as you know, with the non-compete, I can't go sell any other platform. So it was a nice negotiation to say, well, I can sign the non-compete if you give me a reseller deal so I could sell your product. And so in the end, it's worked great because um, we launched Syntax in Motion, uh, which is the, the production company. Uh, it's based here in Burlington, Vermont. We produce our own original content like my podcast show, a number of other shows, and then we produce content for people and then we launch them on the, the platform. And I still work very closely with the company and, uh, and they refer business to us that, that doesn't fit them. And the relationship's been excellent. I, I have to say, I, the, the people that, as you know, the people that we sold to, they've been fantastic to work with, great business partners. And I've been able to launch this second business with this tight relationship with them, helping them grow the business on that side. And um, and also, you know, building up what we're doing here and, and not having any conflicts of interest, which has been nice. Which is fantastic. In fact, it's, it's collaborative, you know, it's, it's, it's a benefit to everybody. So if people want to find out more about Syntex Emotion or eLearning Brothers or, you know, everything we talked about, what, where do they go? Yeah, so uh, Syntax Emotion is syntaxproduction.com. So that's S-Y-N-T-A-X production.com. Uh, you can learn everything about that. Check out our shows, the services we offer. Uh, we're opening up a studio here in Burlington, Vermont, and our new focus is developing artificial intelligence avatars of professional speakers. So nice. super cool. We're loving it. It's lots of fun. And um, eLearning Brothers, uh, the platform, they've renamed my product to Rockstar Learning. And uh, a lot of effort back and forth with them. They now offer the platform free of charge uh, to the point that a lot of people need time to build up their thing. So eLearningBrothers.com, and you can check out Rockstar Learning at, a, at not a free trial, totally free, and uh, build your model out. So that's kind of cool. And uh, Learning Life, uh, my show, I, I host the Learning Life show. So anywhere you get podcasts, just look for Learning Life with John Toda, and that's the, the podcast show. Love it. Love it. Final question, John. My highest value in life is freedom. Um, that means to me everything from freedom from everybody in the world from oppression to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I, you know, and I get to build my own business and my own vision. What does freedom mean to you and how does it apply to your business and life? So it, it's funny, you probably know this because we've talked about this a lot, mm -hmm. is that the, the whole purpose of, you know, started the business because I didn't want, I wanted freedom to do what I wanted to do, to build the business my own way. And um, for me, a lot of that, we got to a point where I felt like I had no freedom and the execution of this entire deal over and over in my head, what it was about was not about the money, not about, you know, giving up a company, starting to cut, everything was freedom. If you're an entrepreneur, <laughs> every deal you do, everything you set up and create is to have freedom and freedom of opportunity, freedom to work where you want to work, to build the company in your own image. So to me, freedom's everything. Uh, it's, it's why I do what I do. Love it. John Toda, my friend, thank you so much for being a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for everything. You've been a big piece of this whole story. So it's been an honor to be here with you. Yeah, honor to work with you, my friend. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. 
In the Mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a Mastermind format. To sign up for the free Mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.